you will watch a lot of entrepreneurs get to the point of like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. If I build this, every single human on the planet and all of the extraterrestrials are going to want this. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. My fellow Americans, this is the 34th time I'll speak to you from the Oval Office and the last. I'm looking at a photograph, and I can tell it's from the 1980s simply by the fact that it's of Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office. His eyes are bright, and he's got a snazzy tie pin and a crisp white pocket square in the pocket of a dark suit. He's standing next to and shaking hands with a young man. I'm going to guess early 20s, but I'll find out later, 19. The kid is wearing a dark suit, blue tie, and has stepped forward a bit towards the camera. Go look at that picture in detail and just look at the handshake. Like, my knuckles are white. <laughs> I'm gripping it so hard. And uh, the thing was, is like they had us, um, it was a photo op to, to go in as, as he was leaving office. And, I mean, it's kind of a big deal to get the photo op in the Oval Office. That's Wade Chambers, and I'll explain how he fits into our interviews with Venture Capital in a bit. But the reason Wade is in the White House in 1988 is he works in the White House in 1988. He's 19. And I'm starting to think, wow, you know, I've seen him so many times, but like, this is the leader of the free world. This is the most powerful person I know. And it was uh, the, the first time, with the exception of being on the air today, uh, that um, <laughs> my hands were ice cold but sweating. Oh, yes. And so I walked into the room, and, uh, and they told you, sort of, you walk in, you look at the president, uh, you look at the camera, shake the hand, and then you're going to walk out the other side. And it's like literally all of three seconds or something yeah. along those lines. Um, so I walk up, I grab his hand, and I'm staring at him. And he starts twitching his head, right? And he looked at me and then twitched away. And then he looked at me and he twitched away. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, what, what? No, every other time I've seen the president, like he was very engaged, like what is going on? And then he looked back at me and he twitched another time. I'm like, well, what, what? And I look over there 
And, uh, of course, there's a camera there. You got to get your picture taken. I got to get my picture taken. Um, and, but, uh, the, the, and it's a nice, pleasant picture. And, um, but if you go in and you, you <laughs> zoom in on that handshake, it is quite clear uh, that I am very, very nervous <laughs> in that shot. But he was phenomenal. He was truly um, world class at what he did from the ability to connect with humans and, and make them feel like they were special. How does a young man from Missouri end up in his teen years in the White House and the Situation Room specifically? Yeah, that, that is a, a bit of a story. I'll come back to that story in a moment. It's even more surprising than you think. Wade came to my attention as chief technical officer at Grand Rounds, a healthcare company, but he's been on my radar since he was at Twitter and before that at Greylock Partners, where he worked as executive in residence. That's a venture capital position we've not talked about on this podcast before. Think of executive in residence as the I've been there, done that person, ready to help the fund's young entrepreneurs. There's a bunch of younger talent that's actually starting to create companies, and they have all of the energy, all of the intellect, and less of the wisdom. And so when they can actually tap into somebody who's hit the wall hard before a few times and can say, like, how did it feel when you hit that wall? How do I avoid that wall? Um, then there's something that you can you can give to them that, that helps them accelerate. What are the walls in your experience? What are the common denominators for young entrepreneurs who go back to their to their venture uh, capital funding and the, the executive in residence and say, I have done X or I've not achieved X. And everyone says, oh, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Well, there's there's a bunch of, of different things. Um, believing hype. Um, a lot of times it's ego, a lot of times it's blind spots, the things that, that you don't know. Um, I, I love the Steve Blank, uh, four stages to an epiphany, like go out and engage the market. Can you find somebody who's willing to put ink on a check and actually pay you for the thing that you're trying to create? Can you find a second person that's willing to do the same thing? 10 people who are willing to do the same thing. And is the product stopping its rate of change. You've probably figured out product market fit when those things start uh, to be the case. Instead, you will watch a lot of entrepreneurs get to the point of like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. If I build this, every single human on the planet and all of the extraterrestrials are going to want this. Uh, and they are so stuck on the idea that they never go out and try and prove it. That's a pretty big deal. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It is amazing, and this happens in the news industry as well, because we're pressured, you know, did you tweet something today? How many retweets did it get? In which I want to ask my bosses, but nobody's writing a check for that. That it's, it's, it's something you can measure, but in the end, we're not making money off of that thing. Um, it can be sort of that epiphany to a young entrepreneur that, listen, if nobody's going to pay you money for it, it really doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I, I mean, I live, not as a business. I live through that stage as well, right? <laughs> like we're paying for eyeballs. Yeah, uh, and if you think back to the late '90s, early 2000s, right? Like, yeah, we're losing money on every person, but we're going to make it up in scale. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't quite work out that way for everyone, but I think that there were a class of companies where you kind of knew there was a way to be able to monetize it. The real question is: is could you get the volume, and then could you retain? Uh, those eyeballs. And if so, then like advertising became a thing or upsells, um, uh, micropayments, et cetera. That is the exception. And, and largely that has uh, been milked. One of the, your things you did before uh, Grand Rounds and uh, was Twitter. And you have been credited for doing exactly that. Twitter had eyeballs, but it didn't have money. You helped bring revenue to Twitter. That's that's an enormous accomplishment. To be fair, they already had a lot of revenue bef before I came, um, but a, a lot of it was brand advertising and uh, telepart, which, which is how I got there, uh, came in through acquisition. Uh, and we had the ability to understand a person's intent and interest at that point in time. So outside of uh, brand advertising, um, could we understand what they wanted to buy and could we put the right product in front of them at the right time? A lot of those same ideas actually naturally translate to Grand Rounds as well. Uh, can we make sure that we understand what they're going through and, and, and um, who's the right physician to put in front of them? But back then, it was... Let's understand our audience. Um, the duopoly of uh, Google and Facebook. I think every advertiser out there wants uh, another option. Um, they know that prices go up when there's only two people in the market. And if there's another place that we could go, that actually brings some equilibrium uh, to the market. And it was really exciting at Twitter to, to be able to give them that third option. Also on your resume is AOL and uh, Hewlett-Packard and Yahoo. These are companies that at the time were so important and so exciting to work at. And in retrospect, they're AOL, Yahoo, and, and Hewlett-Packard. And my apologies to anyone who works there now that I sound like I am, I am uh, saying that they are not the most important companies in the world, but they're not the most important companies in the world. What... 
lessons can you take out of those companies that were important but aren't as much any longer? Or do you disagree with my premise? Well, one correction. Uh, so while I did work at AOL, they acquired Netscape. That's where I was at. Uh, HP. You still, you still worked at AOL. <laughs> I did. HP uh, bought Opsware. I didn't work at HP. I did uh, ran engineering for Opsware, and that Fair was uh, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz. Oh yeah, we're going to no, we're going to get to that after Netscape. Yeah. Uh, but to go back, what I find is that there are a bunch of companies that sort of show the way, right? And so while they may not have prominence today they sort of showed the way of what the next wave was able to sort of come in and complete the promise of what was shown before. I think that you can look at that very clearly with Netscape. Uh, Netscape showed the way of, oh, a browser. Well, Microsoft said, yeah, but it should be free. Um, Netscape built out an awful lot of enterprise software, um, servers, uh, middleware, et cetera. Lots of other companies afterwards was like, oh, and I know how we could monetize that even better and provide more functionality, et cetera. Opsware, um, same thing. Um, we actually allowed you to automate IT. How do you provision servers? How do you go out and build a full stack of where this the startup that wants to become uh, big and be able to scale overnight, how can we do that? I don't know that there's a direct co correlation between what AWS does today, but this preceded it by a number of years and allowed you to package things up and deploy it. Um, so it kind of proved the point that there was a company that you could uh, that could package up your software and help it scale. And so I think there's a whole round of companies afterwards that came through and actually delivered on what they saw in the first version, the 1.0, and was able to do much, much better 2.0s. Was it at Opsware at 28 that you became uh, your first management job? I started, man well, there is the one of those hit-the-wall experiences, and uh, oh my God, that was a disaster. And then I went back to being an individual contributor for a period of time, and at Netscape uh, was reapproached and like, Dude, you should be a manager. And I'm like, ah, I know, I know this story. This is going to be horrible. I, I think I want to start with the disaster. It. Give me the backstory about being a disastrous manager. Oh wow. Okay. So, um, I was a pretty good engineer. Like I was actually, I think, better than average. Um, and I always sort of gravitated towards the front of projects. And uh, I knew how to simplify things. I knew how to make things work at scale. I knew how to build distributed systems, et cetera. And so after a while, you start to become the project lead, the technical lead. Um, and I was definitely doing that. And at some point, the, the CEO, I mean, a small enough company, um, the CEO stops by and he's like, Wade, you should be a manager. I'm like, the CEO is recognizing that I should be a manager. Like, of course I should be doing this. Uh, and so, yeah, let's do that. And so the very next day, I'm a manager. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> now what? Um, Yes. So we just kept doing things the same way. And, you know, I'd get people into the room and it's like, oh, my God, in the shower this morning, I had this great idea. And here's what we should do. And John, you should be doing this. And Derek, you should be doing that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I thought everything was going smashingly. And then people started to quit. And I was, okay, what's going on here? Like, don't you guys know we're killing it? Uh, and I had one senior engineer who was um, very kind and took me out to lunch and was saying, like, you are probably the worst boss I've ever had. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, um, I haven't grown one bit since you've been my manager. Uh, there is, you suck all of the air out of the room. Um, there is no forward career growth, uh, for me here. Uh, and everybody else is feeling the same way. I, I have this belief that like people can detect excellence and they can detect bullshit. Uh, it was very clear <laughs> he was telling the truth and, and was trying to be excellent in, in the way that he was doing it. And he was so spot on. Right. It, all of those things he was saying was in, incredibly too, true. And honestly, no one, no one had taught me what management was or, or what my role is or how I should be thinking about that differently. So I retreated to competence. I went back to that thing that I knew how to do very, very well. And I started slinging Coda again and did that for another few years. And then Ben Horowitz tells you you can do it again. Yeah. I mean, Ben Horowitz, of all people. Ben, Ben's gifted. I mean, like, that, that, that dude is super smart, super humble, um, and very capable at what he does. And so um, after the, the acquisition by AOL of Netscape, uh, he took over the shopping uh, division at, at now AOL. And what we found is, like, um, you know, this is back in the 90s, and, and there's not a lot of infrastructure. And so every time AOL would turn on a new merchant, we'd just kill their site. Uh, and so was working with Ben to make sure that we've got the right search, we've got the right systems, uh, et cetera. And I think that Ben had a chance to see me um, as an IC and also saw leadership chops in, in that, like, I would move towards the fire. I, I would try and help things out. And... I think that's when uh, Ben was like, okay, you know, there's a lot of the right characteristics in, in this guy. Um, and, you know, it, I think he should be a manager inside of the team. So he approached me with that. And I'm like, dude, no, I suck. I, I, I know I suck. I, I really do suck. And, and, and told him the story about the, the previous company. And he's like, has anybody ever talked to you about what it actually means to be a manager? Um, and he broke it down. Right. In, in a way that like I got it uh, or at least I got the concepts and he volunteered uh, to help me practice and to help me go through uh, the growth that was necessary for me to become a competent manager. And so like uh, at, at the point in time, I'm like, you know, uh, oh, it's been uh, now, you know, Andreessen Horowitz and all that. Can you imagine how much it would cost to hire Ben Horowitz? To yeah. teach you how to be a better manager. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't want to pay that bill. <laughs> I so What did you do the second time around, uh, just a couple, uh, that that made you the better manager? You're the CTO of Grand Rounds now, so clearly you're a pretty good manager. What did you do the second time around? Well, it wasn't about me, right? Like, um, the, the whole point is, is your team growing? Are you capable of winning? Are you capable of understanding what the company needs and then working backwards from that, 
right? A, a, a lot of uh, first-time managers, like if you were to think about individuals are part of teams that build product or build results for the company, they kind of go left to right in that sequence. It's like, oh, I've got some people, and can I hire somebody new? And Oh, they look good, uh, et cetera. Um, and what's the minimal amount that we need as a team to, to have us ship something? And what's that something? What do we commit to? And hopefully the company benefits from it. And I think that senior people come at it, or more uh, professional leaders and managers, think about it from right to left. What are we trying to do as a company? What do we need to achieve? What will create true competitive advantage for us? Interesting. If that's true, what's the desired results that we need? Like what will create genuine business impact and create real competitive advantage? Then you can work backwards from that to say, what's the design of the machine that has the highest likelihood of creating that business impact that, that we need? What's the separation of concerns? What's the separation of responsibilities? What are the competencies and skill sets that we need? Excellent. Okay, let's make sure that the team has the ability to attract that, and we have the ability to go hire, retain, grow uh, that. So now it's all for purpose. It's all in focus. Then really helped set a lot of the cornerstones of that for me to be able to make sure that I was looking at my job correctly. My job was to win and then increase my capacity to win and do that with teams. One of your most famous managers was Ronald Reagan. You worked for Ronald Reagan. Now, everyone in the federal government worked for Ronald Reagan at one point, if that was long enough ago. But you worked in the same room as Ronald Reagan. That man was talented. He had that ability to make you feel like he was you were his favorite within seconds. Like that ability to, and I'm sure being an actor and everything else uh, helped with that. But like genuinely, you felt like you had a connection with him. Uh, within seconds. And he didn't feel aloof or beyond anyone. He felt very much connected to everybody in that room and made sure that he made time to to work the room uh, as well. It was one of those things that uh, actually the you were talking earlier about the picture of me being in. Yes, I've seen a picture of you and Ronald Reagan. You're what, 19? Yeah, I'm, su I'm surprised that I actually made it there. Um, my, my early years... There is nothing from my early years that would suggest that I'd be sitting here talking to you. Uh, my parents were extremely poor. My stepfather had a second grade education. Um, you know, they weren't conscious parents that were thinking about, like, how do we put um, him on the path? Um, so, like, college was never a thing that I even considered. Like, there was just no opportunity for me to, to do that. But I knew that I, my, my father was an auto body repairman. I, I knew that in southeastern Missouri, uh, if I was going to stay there, my life was not going to be so good. I knew that I needed to leave that. I had no idea what I needed to do. I just knew that that wasn't the thing. I knew I needed to um, put myself in a position to win. I had no idea what that would be. And so I joined the Air Force. 
Air Force would give me structure. Air Force would allow me to do things. And that's how I got to be an administrative specialist. Uh, and that I'm thinking like, okay, every day when I'm working in my dad's shop in Missouri, I have to go home and scrub my hands for 30 minutes to like get all of the paint and primer and, and all of those sort of things off. Wow. Being at a desk in the Air Force, that will be better. That is significantly better. And each time... Um, so then I went and I was at the Pentagon for three years before before the White House. And what I found is, is like there's a whole bunch of people who will teach you stuff, right? Like you've just got to be interested. I, I from a young age, was tearing apart uh, radios to rewire speakers throughout my bedroom so that like I could listen to music louder than it was intended to be. And uh, a lot of sort of things that, uh, anything that combines sort of process, art, and science. And so at the Pentagon, um, you know, I, I found a person who worked in uh, as a sysadmin there and was wanting and was willing to teach me how to do like scripting, uh, to do basic things on the computer. And I started investing in that. And, and the more that I could do that, I could learn other things. And so a, a slot uh, came open at the White House, and it was, I had worked with uh, enough different people, and they had seen me apply myself and, like, wanting to do more and more, and I was hungry. Um, I would be willing to work at it. The, that Midwestern work ethic definitely paid off al along those lines. But I just continued to, to continuously every new opportunity run towards it. And when the, the spot came open at the White House, I was like, I, I, I would like to do that. I want to do that. Um, was interviewed for it and, and, and got the role. So you end up creating graphics for the Situation Room in the White House, which in the movies is incredibly dramatic. Are you making graphics of maps and bombers and what's what are you making graphics all, of? All, all of the above. And, and but initially you're going to not be so impressed. Uh, right? If you were going to to create a uh, for example, a one pager of like something that's going on. Uh, when I first got there, um, it was you would go grab uh, an atlas, you would look for a pastel colored map because when you put it on the Xerox, it was not going to copy the color. And so you'd basically get an outline and then you would go into Jane's, uh, which was a military catalog, and you'd go find a picture of the thing that, that was in question or contributing somehow. Uh, you'd make a copy of that. You'd cut it out. You would paste <laughs> it on the other thing. You would then take a... Um, a post-it, you would type on a manual typewriter uh, what was going on. You would put it on there. You would draw with a ruler an arrow or something along those lines. Uh, and then you would take it back to this exact same Xerox copy and, and copier. And now you have the thing that might go into the presidential's daily briefing or, or be used in some other way. Well, that's 19... 87, there's this cool thing called a Macintosh that's starting to happen out, happen. Uh, and Mac two, uh, was out. Um, and all of a sudden you could start to have bitmapped graphics. 
you could actually start to do word processing on the screen. You could actually uh, scan things in and take the clip art and move them onto a page. Uh, the World Vector Shoreline, other um, uh, digital forms of mapping systems were starting to come on, on, well, not online, that was much, much later, but were starting to be available inside of um, the DOD and National Security Council and, and that arena. And so you started to have access to things of where now you could do things more and more digitally. Uh, my contribution inside of that was one, to, to be at the leading edge of like trying to make it more and more digital. But then also, that, that's at the point in time where I, I was like, wait a minute, we're still doing a lot of this manually. What if we were just to write a program that does parts of this? Uh, and so then I started teaching myself HyperCard. Um, no one knows what HyperCard is any, anymore except for, well, if, you, if you've been around a while, you probably remember what uh, HyperCard and Turbo Pascal and, and all of those sort of things were. Um, but we had a very talented set of programmers down in the White House Situation Support Staff um, that actually helped me learn how to program and be able to automate more and more of the, these activities that I was doing until the point where, you know, it was less being an administrative person and more like focusing on the graphics and building the systems necessary to do that. Uh, so much so that the deputy director of the White House Situation Support Staff left to start his own software company. And that's when he reached out to me and said, like, Wade, um, you need to come be a programmer full time uh, and get out of the Air Force. And at, at that point in time, I, I sort of looked up what a four star general was making. And I'm like, yeah, this is probably a, a, a better bet uh, for me. But it scared the snot out of me. But I took the leap. It worked out. Would the young man in southeast Missouri believe the person you are today? It would have been pretty hard uh, to see that connection. I, I mean, all of my training at that point in time would have suggested the opposite. Um, you know, I, I, I watched friends, um, you know, die. I, I had uh, lots of people in, invest in, like, the dumb stuff, um, selling drugs and, and doing those sorts of things. And it felt like a shrinking pie, right? It felt like for you to get ahead, somebody else had to lose. Um, and, and so, like, that was my mindset uh, at that point in time. It's very different here, right? It's an expanding pie. There's all sorts of growth. There are people who want to help you out. There's people who want to see you succeed. There are people who are willing to invest their off hours to help you work through that. But that's a very different place than, than where I started. Um, so I, I think I would have had a hard time uh, seeing my the current version um, of me. Um, I would have been excited if I could have seen that. Wade Chambers, CTO of Grand Rounds. Next week, Bunupati, investor in India. Is there a difference between an Indian American who is American and an Indian American who came from India and became an American? Are there different approaches 
to anything that I would not be aware of? You know, it's, it's, uh, I would say yes. Sand Hill Road is written and produced by me, Scott McGrew, produced and edited by Sean Myers, and executive produced by Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.